You're listening to the On the NBA Beat Podcast, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts left. The Lakers have two. Bryant. It's a shot! LeBron James with no regard for human life! Jordan. And now, your hosts, Lauren Lee Chen and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. Hey listeners, it's Lauren Lee Chen with On the NBA Beat, and we have another team interview coming your way. This time, it's the Brooklyn Nets, and we have the managing editor and founding partner of the Brooklyn game with us, Devin Carpertian. Though actually, for a lot of his life, technically speaking, that might not have been his legal name, since there was a typo on his birth certificate, which went undiscovered until he was 18 years old. Hey Devin, thanks for joining us today. Happy to be here, man. How are you guys doing? Great. The Nets are in a tough position right now. Basically, through trades or swapping picks, they are not going to be in control of any of their own first or second round picks until 2019, actually. So clearly it's going to be difficult for the Nets to rebuild through the draft. So for their rebuilding process right now, what other avenues do they have in the near future? Well, I think, I mean, one of the biggest problems with them, you just hit the nail on the head, is that they don't have any draft picks, right? So if you're going to try to rebuild as a young team, you want to have cap-controlled assets that you can get on a rookie deal. And they just don't have that option. Uh, and nobody's going to be taking Brooke Lopez for a top five pick, or no one is going to take Thaddeus Young for you know a top eight pick. And that's really what you'd want in a situation like that if you're trying to rebuild. So I think the thing that they have to do, they're almost kind of committed to do, is try to wield some of their power in free agency this year. Now, the problem with that is that there's like 25 to 30 teams are going to be able to sign somebody to a max deal. And then you have to figure out, okay, if I can't get one of the top five, seven, eight players, am I still going to throw max money at a Harrison Barnes or somebody like that? So it's a really, really tough avenue for them because the only thing they can really do is something that almost every other team can do and almost every other team is in a better position to do because the Nets just don't have the talent to really compete. Like if they're trying to sign Kevin Durant, for example, there are you know 18 other teams who have a better cap or have all the same cap room and a better situation for Durant to play in. So it's going to take some magic from Sean Marks. I don't really know what he has up his sleeve or what his plan or his vision is, but if he can do something in this free agent period to kind of put the team back in a competitive level, I think that's what he almost has to do. Would you say that there's anyone on the current roster that are the important pieces to build around, or would you sort of just call everyone on the roster an asset to use maybe in trades or maybe as contracts going forward? I think it's a little bit of both. I think they're committed to keeping Rondé Hollis-Jefferson around. And I mean, that's to his credit. He's been really, really good. And they picked him up, I think, 23rd in the draft. And he's well earned that. I think they're shopping Brooke Lopez is like a an annual ritual at this point. So I think they'll probably test the market on him. But the, the problem is, again, you've got a guy who's going to be making, I think, $40 million over the next two years. And you have to find a team that's going to take that on and give you something valuable in return. And I don't think that there's really an option for that out there. Now, again, and this is kind of the flip side of that, is that with all these teams that are going to have a ton of cap room and nobody to spend it on, maybe there is a team that will take on you know, a Brooke Lopez and maybe give you a couple draft picks if they're a step away from competing and don't necessarily need the picks right away. I don't think it's going to happen, but it's a possibility. So I think that, you know, to answer your question, there are pieces that they are trying to hold on to very clearly. I think they want to see more out of Chris McCullough. Uh, I think Brooke and Thad are kind of the centerpieces right now. And Rondé, obviously, is a piece of that as well. 
But I, I think for the right deal, I mean, look, let's not, you know, play any games here. They're like 21 and 52, I think, at this point. You know, nobody on that team is untouchable. They got into this position largely because of that crazy 2013 trade <laughs> with the Celtics that brought over Paul Pierce and Kevin Garnett, among others, and sent away first round picks in 2014, 2016, and 2018, as well as a right to swap picks in 2017. Around that time when the trade happened, what was the sentiment for fans and experts? And were people really aware of how much effect this trade would have for the future of the Nets? Well, no, I don't think anybody really had a sense of this. I mean, there might have been a sense that this was the worst case scenario, but I don't think anybody actually thought that this was realistic. Now, look, it's very easy now to look at that trade and say this was a disaster that set the team back until 2020. But at the time, the almost overwhelming majority of people were like, this is, an, this is a great deal for the Nets, and they're going to be competitive with the Miami Heat, and they're going to try to win a championship. And that was the goal when they made that deal. And that deal not only you know facilitated bringing KG and Pierce, but also Andre Karolenko signed on for the taxpayer mid-level. You know, they had a really, really solid foundation. And you could very easily see that team in that summer and think, okay, that team is going to win you know, 55, 60 games and, you know, compete with the Heat for the Eastern Conference Championship. Obviously, it didn't turn out that way. And weirdly enough, it only really worked out when Brooke Lopez went down for the year and then they had a great run in that second half that led them to, to the second round. So it's easy now. And I think you get a lot of revisionist history now from people who don't have to defend their position at the time of the trade. I defended the trade at the time. I thought it was a great trade. And obviously, I was wrong. But I still think in, in that moment, if you see that deal, you know, you can see the pieces making sense. You know, there's, there was a whole lot of talk about how Prokhorov was going to make sure that they signed the right players and ensure that they would make the playoffs so those picks wouldn't work out as they have. Now, obviously, it's all falling apart and the house of cards has come tumbling down. But at the time, you could very much see the rationale of, OK, we're bringing in two Hall of Famers who are going to compliment a re-energized Darren Williams, who I think had just gone through another ankle surgery. And so he was supposed to be all cleared up. Brooke Lopez, who was going to be healthy again, you know, putting them next to Joe Johnson, you know, that was supposed to be a great team. It obviously didn't work out, but it was supposed to be a great team. And you can see the rationale then that obviously didn't work out now. Yeah, it's really funny, actually, looking up articles from 2013, reporting on the trade, a lot of outlets originally don't even report in the article, the 2017 right to swap picks with the Celtics, because it was assumed that this trade would launch the Nets into being a championship contender and send the Celtics into super tank mode. And it's funny that that really hasn't happened at all. The opposite has happened. I mean, look, the Celtics are in an incredible position right now. They've got a great team for the Eastern Conference, and they've got a, essentially a free top five pick coming their way. And it's kind of weird to see Celtics fans who get mad when the Nets win. It's like, man, look, you just gotten this huge gift. Why are you even, why are you upset? You're going to get a top seven pick no matter what. You're probably going to get a top five pick. You might get the first pick. Like, it's fine. You guys are doing just fine. <laughs> Coming over from the San Antonio Spurs, Sean Marks, now their GM, and he's already made his imprint on the team, getting rid of guys like Joe Johnson and Andrea Bargnani. He's also picked up some solid role players on value contracts like Sean Kilpatrick and Henry Sims. It seems to me, at least my indication is that there's a lot of optimism around the team in the area that he'll bring something exciting and new to the front office. Personally, how do you feel about what he can do? I, I know you mentioned earlier that we'll have to see what kind of magic he can pull out of his hat. Well, I mean, in a larger sense, having a new GM instills hope, right? I mean, Billy King had been the facilitator of these moves that had put the Nets in this position. 
and Lyle Hollins had been the head coach of a team that was floundering and they were not, you know, there was nothing to hope for, to be excited about. So, and so Sean Marks, enter Sean Marks, this young guy who, you know, is a fast riser in the best organization in sports. I mean, or at least in the NBA and possibly in sports and somebody who is tr- set to kind of steer the course of the ship kind of away from where it's going. So that's kind of, I think, where you see his value is that people are going to look at the Nets and say, okay, this is not the Nets of old that made these huge, pricey, expensive mistakes. This is a team that's looking towards building something in their organization that resembles the San Antonio Spurs. And that starts from the head with Sean Marks. And then he hires Trajan Langdon, who he worked with when I think Langdon was a scout in San Antonio before he went to Cleveland. There's very clearly a hierarchy that people can believe in. The problem is, of course, that there, well, there are two problems. The first problem is we can't really know if there's anything to believe in until the summer is over and they've signed somebody or they've built a new franchise, you know, they've built the roster over completely. And then secondly, I mean, even if he messes up for like two or three years, who's going to know? How are you going to tell? <laughs> like, how, he's not going to be able to miss on first round draft picks. He's not right. going to be able to scout first round draft picks and, and, and pick them. I mean, I guess he can make a trade, but it's not really going to be a big part of his job. If they can't get free agents, I mean, there's a built-in excuse that, look, they're a 20-win team that has cap room when everybody right. else has cap room. So in a weird way, I think he has job security unlike almost anybody because yeah. he's a very smart dude. He has a lot of outs right now if things don't go his way. And there's he's in a situation that's going to take a lot of time to rebuild unless he can strike gold that nobody is really expecting. So, again, we'll see. And the hope is kind of that it can't get worse than it is now. And I think yeah. that he seems like a smart enough guy that he can take it to at least a, a better level than the old organization's hierarchy might have done. Yeah, you raised some excellent points. His hands are definitely tied. And so I agree with you there that he will have that job security that seemingly has gone by the wayside in today's NBA and just professional sports as a whole. Yeah, he would have to franchise like Jason Kidd-esque, very strange, like trying to steal power from Prokhorov. I mean, I don't know what he would have to do to lose his job. Let's put it that it, way. It would be pretty hard, yeah. So as <laughs> yeah. long as he shows up to work on time, he's professional and everything he should be okay for a little bit and and that could be a good thing too and allowing him to be more patient with his moves and give him a a longer time horizon but Sean Kilpatrick is one guy that I mentioned earlier that he picked up from the D-League he's been a really good player he's 26 years old actually from Yonkers New York can you just tell us a little bit more about his background and his journey to the league also I'm interested in and just a little breakdown of his game. Not a lot of us know about him because he's, he's come onto the scene pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, well, he was uh, he was a star at Cincinnati, but the problem with him coming out of college was that he was, I think he was 24 years old at the draft. And that's going to scare away a lot of talent evaluators because, look, I mean, you can get somebody at 19 who's almost as good as a guy who's 24. You're going to want to get the guy at 19. So he, he had a very rough background. He grew up in Yonkers. And like you noted, he has been kind of trying to chip away at the NBA for a while. He's had a couple of 10-day contracts. And, you know, the Nets were in a position that was almost perfect for him. They have some open roster spots and they have, you know, they just bought out Joe Johnson and they need to figure out, okay, what are we going to get on the wing? Let's try to find anything. And you enter Sean Kilpatrick, who was the D-League's leading scorer at the time when they signed him. He's just always looking to get points. It's it's almost like it's fun to watch him on offense because you can see, you know, I see the wheels turning of like, okay, how can I score on this possession? It's actually kind of, it's kind of fun to watch because he's just got an unrelenting thirst for getting buckets. And what's interesting about him as a player is that you hear a lot of his offense, and obviously I've just talked about it, 
But he he gets into it defensively as well. He's got a better defensive ability than I think people give him credit for. And I asked him about that. I said, look, like you you don't have any problem getting into people. And he's like, well, it works out in my favor because everyone thinks I'm a scorer, that they can just do things on, on the other end of the floor and I'm not going to be able to pay attention to it. But uh, I, I think he's a really solid player. I don't know how much upside he has because he's already 26, 27 years old. But you can totally see him competing with Boyan Bogdanovich and Ronda House Jefferson and Markel Brown for those minutes on the wing, uh, depending who sticks around. And the fact that he was as good as he's been, Sean Marks gave him a multi-year contract. He's already got a contract for next year, which you know not a lot of players get guaranteed after two 10 days. So it speaks to how he impressed Sean Marks and also just how, you know, how good he's been in his short stint so far. Yeah, a guy you just mentioned, Boyan Bogdanovich. He's another person that's, at least offensively, come alive to some extent in the recent games in March, specifically scoring 17 points per game, which is up from his season average of about 11. And he's scoring efficiently also. He's shooting 42% from three during that time. How's he been able to improve his game in the late season? Well, a couple of things have changed for him. For one, he's definitely running the floor really well. And the Nets were not exactly trying to run the floor in the first couple of months. You know, he I think he's doubled his points in transition per game since the All-Star break. Part of that had to do with playing more minutes because Joe Johnson got bought out. But part of that was also just that he's, you know, really looking to get those points. He shot really well. The team's offense is a lot more spread out under Tony Brown than Lionel Hollins, which has helped him. He's another guy like Kilpatrick, who's very much an offensive player. Now, defensively, he's not on the same level, but on offense, he can really kind of create baskets where you don't see them and he can hit the open ones, which is really valuable for a guy who's going to be your third or fourth option on offense or your first guy off the bench, that kind of role. Now, listen, now look, I mean, he had a 44-point game against a team that was playing Kendall Marshall, a power forward for some stretches. So let's not like, this is not exactly LeBron versus Pierce in the 08 playoffs. It's, you know, he's, he's definitely got some limitations. But as far as, again, you're looking at pieces for the future that fit into what the Nets are trying to do, you can very easily see Bogdanovich fitting in as, again, either the fourth best or third best scorer in the starting lineup or that first guy off the bench who provides you with that offensive spark. Yeah, and another guy who's going to be, as you said, a piece for the future is Rondé Hollis-Jefferson. The team's committed to him, as you said, and he's had a bit of an injury-plagued season so far, but he's getting a little bit more court action right now before the season concludes. What are the areas for him that show the most promise? Well, I mean, he's an incredible defender. From day one, you could see it. He gets into guys' jerseys. He stays around guys on pick and rolls. He's hounds after the ball. I think he averaged more rebounds per game than any other shooting guard before he went down with the injury. And, and it wasn't an accident. I mean, he is a tenacious player on the defensive end. On offense, you know, he's a good cutter of the basket. He's a good slasher. But his biggest weakness is the thing that is changing the game right now, which is that he can't hit a shot outside of 15 feet. His jumper is, you can see a noticeable hitch anytime he shoots a jumper outside of 17 feet. He's going to have to completely rework his jump shot. I think of like Michael Kidd Gilchrist, uh, you know, had the same kind of issue coming out of college. And that's, and he pretty much is the reason why the Nets hired a shooting coach. Nets hired a shooting coach back in, I think, February, a guy named David Nurse. And it was basically because, okay, we need to make sure that this guy is a part of our future from a development standpoint, we need to get somebody who can show him how to shoot the damn thing. So that's where his problems lie. Now, the good news is that fixing a shot is easier than fixing your energy. And his energy is something that, you know, when he's on the court, it changes the dynamic of how this team plays defense. It's just, it's visceral. You see it on the court and it's a very, very different team playing defense when he's on the court. And he's smart enough on offense to kind of get to the basket sneak behind cutters, drive, draw fouls. He has all those skills. If he can ever develop that jumper, he's going to be an important force 
on both ends of the floor. But even without it, he's a great defensive player. And just to follow up on that, I know that his jump shot has a long way to go. I mean, I think to be talking about the three-point line is way premature, but would it even be a huge victory for him to just develop that mid-range game at this point? Yeah, and I think that's what he's doing. In the in preseason, we got to ask him about a shot. He's like, man, I got to stick. I'm, I, call, I call myself a mid-range assassin because that's where I got to be right now. And uh, <laughs> You know, he grew up idolizing Kobe Bryant. You know, he grew up not that far from from where Kobe grew up. He came from Chester, Pennsylvania. Kobe's from Lower Marion. They're they're very they're high school rivals, basically. And uh, when he got a chance to talk to Kobe a couple weeks ago, and they were in L.A., Kobe said to him, or according to him, Kobe said to him, "Man, just fall in love with that mid range because that's what you've got right now." And I think that, so. The, the goal for him is to start around that area because if he shoots free throws, there's no hitch. He's very comfortable shooting from about that area. It's not. It's not exactly Ray Allen, but it's not, you know, it's not as bad as you would imagine for a guy who can't shoot from three. So I think the goal is to start him in that area and then hopefully over the next couple of years work out the tweaks and then, you know, start him on, you know, corner threes. And hopefully by the time he's at the end of his rookie contract, you have a guy who can who can shoot at least a respectable rate, maybe not, you know, a forty percent, but a guy who can shoot maybe thirty, thirty-five percent from three. I think that's the goal for him. Now, I know Brooke Lopez isn't known for being a particularly good rebounder, and that's probably putting it kindly, but <laughs> Thaddeus Young is a really good rebounder, particularly for his size and his position. He's leading the team in rebounds per game. His rebounding rate is crazy high. How is he getting that done, and how important is that for the team? You know, I think it's because his, his wife, Shakina Young, is always tweeting whenever he gets a double-double. I think that's his motivation. <laughs> uh, if, you, if you go, it's, it's actually really – every time he has a double-double, she's tweeting about it. It's a lot of fun. But in all seriousness, I, Thaddeus is a legitimately good NBA player. And that's kind of the thing about the Nets right now is that they have Brooke, who's, you know, who's great. He's had a great season. You have Thaddeus, who's had a good season. Then you have all these guys who are still kind of around the – like, where, are they going to make it in the NBA? Are they developing? Is this their last stand? You know, Thaddeus, he's a worker, and, and he's able to – what's really impressive about him is his strength in the sense that you don't think of him as like a bully, but he's really, really good at getting into guys' bodies uh, under the basket, whether that's scoring, uh, using his power dribble to create space, getting up and blocking shots, and getting into guys and getting rebounds. I mean, he's a very, very talented all-around player, and that's the kind of guy who you want because he's going to fit in to pretty much anything you want to do. He's gonna. He's never gonna be your best player, but he's a really, really good guy to have in a lineup that kind of keeps it all together. And he's a smart defensive player. He can shoot out to mid range. He can drive to the basket and score. He has really, really good touch on floaters, which is not something I thought of him coming into this season. I didn't think he was the kind of guy who put up shots in the paint over defenders. But you know, he that's, that's he's been doing it at, a, at an incredible rate this year. And that's kind of why I think I see. I think Sean Marks sees Brooke and Thad as the centerpieces, and they want to improve on that and build around that. So Brooke Lopez, we've heard a lot about him on and off the court. By all accounts, he's a huge nerd, comic <laughs> books, and and just into that type of stuff. No judgment here. We we all consider ourselves nerds as hosts. But what do you think are some of the more interesting? things that you've heard about that side of him? I don't know, possibly an insider scoop or anecdote that you may have. Well, I know that he, and maybe this is, maybe I shouldn't be saying this, but I'll say it to you guys. He wants to work on a comic book slash children's story with a certain member of the Nets organization. Let's leave it at that. It's funny. I, I can't remember if he's the one who loves writing or drawing. I think, I think Robin is the artist and Brooke is the creative writer. 
Um, okay. and, and the funny thing about that is that, so Brooke and Robin have been peddling this idea that they have a comic book in the works or like a, a comic book series in the works for like five years and it's never happened. And I can't believe that they actually have, it. because if you're okay, if you're a seven foot pair of twins who live in New York city and, you know, in the same city who have all summer together and you both are multi, multi-millionaires, you know, set for life, your generation set for life, you can get in a room with Marvel and pitch a story. And it's got to be, if you do that and it's not, you know, if they don't approve it, it's got to be the worst story that's <laughs> ever been written in the history of men. So I, I personally yeah. don't think that they could be that bad. So I think, I think they're just putting one over on us. And I'm going to believe that they have a comic book when I see it. Let's put it that way. If, if they come out with one, I'll believe it when I see the binding in my hands and I open it and it says, by Brooke and Robin Lopez, and there's a drawing of some action adventure fantasy superhero, that's when I'll believe it. Until then, I think they're just, I think they're just lying to people. That would be cool if they end up collaborating. Do you think it's possible that maybe they just are just procrastinating and, and oh, they just definitely. don't want to put in the time? They, they feel like they could, but they just haven't gotten around to it. Oh, definitely. I think there's definitely a chance of that. So the, the, the first time they played against each other, I don't remember if this was last season or the first game of this season. The night beforehand, Brooke went into how he and Robin went out to McDonald's at three in the morning and got filet of fish. So I don't think that they're the most motivated guys to finish anything besides, you know, playing in their incredibly talented basketball careers. Let's put it that way. And we've talked a lot so far this episode about various players' offensive skills. And it seems like other than Rondé Hollis Jefferson, that's the focal point of a lot of the players on the Nets. The Nets are 30th in the league in opponent field goal percentage. They're 29th in defensive rating. So is their defense just a personnel issue that they don't have a lot of defensive-minded guys other than Rondé? Or is it something wrong with the coaching? I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, look, Lionel Hollins uh, had kind of a reputation as a defensive coach in Memphis, but a lot of that had to do with the fact that he had Tony Allen and Marcus Gasol who happen to be two great defensive players. The Nets don't really have that. But also, A, when you're switching coaches in the middle of the season uh, and you don't have the personnel, B, you don't have the personnel, it's really difficult to have five guys who know what, what all the other four guys are doing on the court at the same time on the defensive end. It's easier to do on offense. It's not as easy to do defensively. And so if you watch the Nets now, and I don't blame you if you don't, but if you watch the Nets now, you see five guys who might be playing with each other for like the third time. And so Chris McCullough might not know what Sean Kilpatrick's supposed to do on this pick and roll coverage, or you know, Boyan Bogdanovich might not know what Thomas Robinson is doing in health defense, and so you, there's all these little things that over the course of a 24 second shot clock, there's going to be an opening and something's going to fall apart, and that's kind of, that's what happened in the Nets. We're recording this Wednesday afternoon on Tuesday night against the Magic. They, they allowed 139 points. Uh, the Magic shoot like 60 percent from the field, 50 percent from three, and a lot of them were just clean open looks where the Nets just didn't know where any, what anyone else was doing. Now, if they get another coach in the off season, and they hire somebody who actually has autonomy and they hire and they sign personnel who have already kind of a defense first mentality and they can build something out of training camp. I think you're going to see a defense that's a little better if they don't get that personnel and Tony Brown doesn't figure out whatever is not working on defense that, that is working for him on offense. You might see a little more of the same. Yeah, it is kind of like a ragtag bunch of guys. There were a lot of guys that came over first on 10-day contracts that now have more longer-term deals, but it seems like a lot of the make of the team are these unheralded young players, guys like Kilpatrick, as we mentioned before, Henry Sims, Karasev, Markel Brown types, Chris McCullough. 
next season, there's going to be a new D-League affiliate for the Nets, the Long Island Nets. Do you expect them to use that more heavily to scout talent and find more of those unheralded young players to help their rebuilding process? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, Sean Marks was the GM of the Austin Toros with the San Antonio Spurs. He knows the value of what a D-League team can bring. Because right now, the Nets basically have a 10-man rotation where eight of the guys are trying to fight for an NBA contract, right? Like, you have guys who, you know, like Shane Larkin and Thomas Robinson, who, you know, if they don't prove something to to some talent evaluator, they might be at the end of the road. So the the D-League team, the Long Island Nets for the Nets, is a chance to look at these players and continue to evaluate these kinds of guys, these diamonds in the rough. Uh, And I think they're absolutely going to use it. So for the first year, the Long Island Nets are going to play in Barclays Center. They're going to practice in Brooklyn. Like, they're not going to be guys who who the team doesn't have a sense of how they're playing. It's not like they're off in Grand Rapids uh, or or Maine somewhere and Sean Mark sees them, you know, once every three months. These are going to be guys who are in the gym all the time. And they're going to have a chance to evaluate and figure out whether or not they want to continue to work with them. So I think that's going to be a very, very important part of their development. Now, again, the other side of that is if you had a top three pick, maybe it's not such a big priority that you go in the D league, but they don't have that. So they have to go to this Avenue. And I think it's going to be a pretty strong priority. Your Twitter bio says that you watch the Nets, so we don't have to. I think that's pretty (laughs) hilarious. And we, we haven't really watched the Nets to be honest. That's why it's there. (laughs) Yeah. What's the biggest surprise or most under the radar story or just something that people may not be aware of who don't watch the Nets on a regular basis? Uh, That's a good question. This might be a bit of a cop-out answer because I think people generally know how good he is, but Brooke Lopez is really having a great season. He really is. He's having one of the better seasons of his career, and it's a shame that he's surrounded by a bunch of talent that's just trying to prove that it belongs in the league rather than guys who have established themselves. He's an incredible post-up scorer. He's a great pick-and-roll scorer. He's a better rebounder now than he has been before. I think he's averaging about eight rebounds a game, which you know isn't fantastic, but it's better than people the anemic amount that people think he gets. He's the kind of guy that you know he's very loyal. He's been you know peddled on the trade market pretty much since the day he was drafted, and he's still he resigned here. He he likes being here. He's moving to Brooklyn. He's getting a condo I think in the summer. I mean. He is really a phenomenal player. He's improved his passing this year. He works surprisingly well off Shane Larkin, which I think is is an interesting development because you've got probably the biggest disparity in speed and size between a pick and roll mate in the league, and it's actually working pretty well. Um, so that's kind of what I would say. It's like if you're not watching the Nets, it's hard to appreciate Brook Lopez because you think he's just putting up stats in a bad team, and to some degree he is. But he really, he really has had a, a really, really good season, and I hope for his sake that the Nets can figure out something in the offseason so that he can shine on a team that's actually good again, as opposed to a team like this. Yeah, Devin, I don't think that's a cop-out answer. I think it's hard to appreciate what he's doing, especially if you're not watching the team regularly. But this is the last question for you, and then we'll let you go. It's definitely been a pleasure. I want to ask you about the head coaching situation. Tony Brown essentially has the same record as Lionel Hollins did in the early part of the season. You said that with Brown, the team was opening it up a little bit more offensively, but what are the primary differences? And does Tony Brown have any shot at all of staying on um, as head coach and, and shedding the interim tag? I'll answer those in reverse. So I would give Tony Brown a thousand to one shot at retaining this job. I, I don't think there's a very good chance. And the only reason I don't say zero is because I've 
anything is possible. Um, anything but, is possible. That's what Kevin Garnett says. I know. And he came to Brooklyn and the team flamed out. So I know. <laughs> you see what I mean, I thought anything was possible. And then it turned out that the wrong side of anything was possible. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, but so, so I think Tony and Tony Brown, when you talk to him in interviews, I think you kind of get a sense from him. He might not say it outright that he's like, look, I'm auditioning like my players, you know, like Shane Larkin is auditioning for his next contract. I think Tony Brown is auditioning for a proper head coaching job. And I think what the Nets are going to do in the off season is look for somebody with a little bit more of a pedigree. It might not be a former coach. It might be a, a, a big, a top assistant, like an Atori Messina or a, or a Kenny Atkinson. But uh, I, I don't think Tony Brown is going to be that guy. Now under Brown, like I said, they've, they've opened the floor up a lot more. So with the Hollands, you get a lot of plays where guys would curl around and shoot 20 footers. With Tony, you got a lot of plays where guys are spotting up and shooting threes. And you can, if you look at the pre-Hollands and post-Hollands numbers, their three-point shooting, I think, is like fifth in the league since Hollands got canned. I mean, it's it's a staggering difference. Wow. Uh, so that, that's been the primary. Yeah, I, I don't have the number offhand, but if you look it up and, and plug it somewhere into this podcast, it's a staggering difference. Um, you know, Markel Brown is, has gotten a lot more better looks. Bogdanovich has gotten, gotten good looks. Uh, signing Kilpatrick was, was another part of that. The offense is a little more free-flowing and a little more spaced out. Defensively, they've looked a lot worse. I don't know exactly why that is. I think that, you know, they weren't good before and they're still not good now. So I think that's pretty much where, where, that, where that comes from. I, I know you didn't ask this question, but if I, if I had to guess who the next coach would be, I would bet – on a Tori Messina, if only because he has connections with Sean Marks and Trajan Langdon, and he also has connections with Mikhail Prokhorov. I think that's the direction they're going to go with the coaching search. I didn't ask, but I'm glad you answered that. That's good to know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, again, but again, anything is possible, and I'm often wrong. But that would be, if I'm going to put bets on it today, that's who I'd bet on. Devin, thank you so much for joining us today. Got so much information from you, and I hope for your sake that Sean Marks is able to strike gold or work <laughs> some magic in the offseason so that this Brooklyn Nets team is a little bit more bearable in the future. It's always fun. It's basketball, man. I mean, how can you be upset at basketball? That's, the, yeah. that's exactly right. Thanks a lot, Devin. No problem, guys.